So grab your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we'll read the same passage that we did this morning. So if you'll stand with me, reverence to God's word, we'll start back in the verse 43, which you looked at in some detail this morning, and, and we'll go from there. Matthew the evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask the same thing every time, that you would open our entire being, that we would receive, having believed your word, that we would be transformed by it. Point us to Jesus and his saving gospel. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name yourself, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I, I trust you, you remember this. I certainly remember it, particularly as a child when I watched a lot of NFL football, and uh, whenever a, a team would uh, kick a field goal or extra point, something like that, uh, there would be a guy uh, that, that the camera would pick up right behind the field goals, the uprights, and he would hold up a sign saying, John 316. It didn't matter where the game was, what stadium it was, it was in, who was playing, there was always that guy. And, and, and it would be, seem like on both ends of, of the field, someone holding up John 3.16. Now, without a doubt, this verse is the most prominent verse in the modern West. Even those who are pagans who have never read the Bible, they would be familiar with John 3.16 and with a little bit of help could probably recite some of it. And no doubt each of us here could quote it from memory. It got me thinking that what do you think was the most common verse in the early church? What was the verse that, if you're reading through the available writings that we have, and we have quite a bit, it would take multiple volumes for the first 300 centuries of church writers, and theologians, uh, um, um, uh, apologists, pastors, and whatnot. Uh, what is the most commonly referenced and quoted verse? Well, it's not John 3.16. It is to our surprise, Matthew 5, 44. There to read it again, I say to you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you remember that this was written in the first three verses in a context by which Christianity was a minority movement that was largely a persecuted people group. Enemy love, they believe, was the hallmark of Christianity. Others had taught that you should love one's neighbors, and we talked about that this morning, but never imagined forgiving or loving those who had wronged them. In fact, the most common ethic today is that you do good to, you do good to those who do good to you. And it is okay to do bad things to those who do bad things to you. In fact, it's probably the way many of you are going to drive home. If you are driving home and someone has their brights on, I'm willing to bet some of you awful people will not turn off your brights until the other person turns off theirs. Are you one of them? Uh, those people, I just, they drive me crazy. Uh, 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 but, but that's the way we often live our lives. We will show kindness to those who reciprocate kindness. 
We will show love to those who reciprocate love. And along comes Jesus and his father is saying, no, that true love is geared towards everybody, whether sinner or saint, enemy or friend. We are called to love. And the reason we are called to love and take love this far is because this is how far God took his love towards us. So this morning we saw false love. And so this uh, evening we want to see true love, verses 44 to 48. Now in contrast to the rhetoric that dominated Jewish life, excuse me, Jesus highlights those who were the target of hate at those who should, whom they should love. Again, love your enemies. This, as we have seen, violates human history and human nature. And to demonstrate how far he wants us to take this principle, he tells us that those whom we should love are those who are persecuting us. And I think that's interesting. He could stop to say, love your enemies, which would then open up the door for us to do as we normally do, and that is define the word enemy in such a way that benefits us. But Jesus doesn't do that. He defines it for us. He says, let me give you an example of an enemy you should love. You should love the person that seeks your destruction. You should love the person that wishes you were dead. You should love the person who delights in your suffering and harm. You should love the person who is persecuting you. Love them. Well, the question we have then is, how do we love such people? It's easy to just say it as principle. It's another thing to put it into practice. And I want to highlight two things that Jesus has here in verses 44 to 48 in our time this evening. The first way we can learn to, learn to love our enemies is, first of all, we must, we must pray for them. We must pray for our enemies. You see it there in verse 44. I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's interesting, isn't it? He could have simply said, love your enemies, especially those who persecute you. Instead, he adds another verb, uh, love and pray for your enemies. Now, why should we pray for the people whom we struggle to love with, right? These are the people that we don't really like. Uh, why should we pray especially for them? I have two we could, we could give, uh, you know, a dozen others, but two that sticks out to me. First of all, praying for our enemies reminds us that they are loved by God. Praying for, for our enemies reminds us that they are loved by God, and they are loved equally as much as we are loved by God. When we demonize others, we see them as less than human. And that is to say, we view them as unworthy of God's favor and grace. Much in our discussion of forgiveness, whenever we say, whenever we refuse to forgive someone, what we're saying is that the sins you've committed against me are greater than the sins I've committed against God. After all, if I am worthy of forgiveness and you are not worthy of forgiveness, your sins are greater than mine. That takes you down a very dangerous path. So too, if we say that I am worthy of God's love, but my enemy is not, what we have done is we have elevated ourselves and we have dehumanized them. If God's love is universal, so ought gospel love be universal. Praying for our enemies reminds us that they too are loved by our heavenly father. We are not loved more, they are not loved less. 
Secondly, we, we should pray because prayer seeks the well-being of others. I mean, I, I'm willing to bet that most of your prayers, when you intercede on behalf of someone, it is usually for their well-being. Help Aunt Flossie with her ingrown toenail. I help my children to figure out their future and to get into that school, whatever it might be. It is often for the benefit of others. So too, when we pray for our enemies, we are praying for their well-being. Maybe it's for God to, to soften their hearts and to help them uh, to go in the direction of, of, of the gospel and of righteousness, whatever it might be. Um, but, but, uh, but when we are fueled by hate, what we end up doing is we end up seeking their suffering. We end up seeking their destruction. But when we pray for them, we are seeking their well-being. So in short, the reason we ought to pray for our enemies is because uh, it is hard to hate the people you are praying for. And one of the things prayer does is Prayer is a type of meditation. Now, meditation is a weird word in Baptist circles, but it's a biblical concept. We've talked about it a thousand times, at least in our time here. And, and you meditate on things regardless. And uh, I think we said this maybe Wednesday night or last Sunday, whenever it was, that uh, anxiety is when we meditate on things we cannot control and we get panicked and worried about it. Thanksgiving is to meditate on things we cannot control, yet we are grateful for them because God is the one in control. So to prayer allows us to meditate on things that are priorities to us, and we are hand handling our cares and concerns over to God. God, take care of this situation. God, help me to navigate uh, the, these difficult people in my life. And you will either meditate on why you hate them or you can meditate through prayer on why God loves them. One of them is for the benefit of your soul. The other will ruin it. And of course, we are called to pray for the salvation of sinners. And if you want to resolve issues of sin, hardship, anger, division, so on and so forth, it will come when people believe the gospel and are transformed by it. And having been transformed by it, we choose to live by it. So Jesus wants us to pray for our enemies. But not only does he want us to pray for our enemies, we can go back earlier in verse 44, and quite simply, we need to just love our enemies. But we need to love them with gospel love. That, that's the key here. Because often we'll say, well, of course I love them. That's why I ignore them. I ignore them because if, I, if I'm in the same room with them, I might lose my temper. Well, that's not gospel love. It's not gospel love. Jesus, when he speaks of loving your enemies, he has a certain type of love in mind. He wants us to love them with gospel love. So notice what he says here uh, in that regard. That really dominates the, the rest of this passage. Uh, the first thing we see here is that gospel love is of divine origin, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So you should love your neighbor, you should pray, or your, your enemy, and you should pray for them. Why? Because love is from God. When we pray and practice genuine love for our enemies, we act like children mimicking his, their father. 
If you love, if you want to be sons of the Father, rather, Jesus exhorts us that we should love like he loves. After all, God is love. And the assumption of this verse is that the true genesis and the perfection of love comes from God himself. So too in, in, in sports, if, if, if you want to be the very best, you are encouraged to watch and to mimic the very best. One of the things that Michael Jordan mentioned about Kobe Bryant that drove him crazy, and everyone was asking, is Kobe Bryant a better player than you? And Michael Jordan would say, he'll never be a better player than me because he stole all of his moves from me. And you can get on the Google or the YouTube right now, the same company, and you can look up Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. You will see that it is almost exactly the same player. For example, whenever Kobe Bryant uh, 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 posts up and he takes his right, he steps back with his right foot and does a fadeaway, watch how his feet come off the ground. It is exactly the way Michael Jordan did it. Kobe Bryant basically did everything uh, except an overabundance of, of sticking his tongue out. Beyond that, everything was Michael Jordan. So Michael Jordan's point is he will never be better than me because he stole everything from me. There's, there's, there's something kind of good about that, isn't it? So too, you will never be able to outlove the God who is the very essence and the presence of love. So Jesus says, if you want to be God's son, God's daughter, then you should grow in the love of your father. And how does God show his love towards us? Well, he loves everyone, including his enemies. So just as the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous, so too we should love both the righteous and the unrighteous. Just as the rain falls on the just and the unjust, so too we should love the just and the unjust. And it is never because the unrighteous and the unjust are worthy of love. Love transcends worthiness. That's why it's love. That's why it's love. That is what God has shown us in his love. The point is, is that God does not discriminate his blessings. If anybody has a right not to love anyone, surely it is God. And yet he equally blesses all, even those who may hate him. Somehow, God still shows his love towards those who ignore him. Somehow, God still shows his love towards those who reject him. You see, because a prejudiced love is not divine love. In fact, prejudiced love is no better than worldly love. Surely, Christians want to elevate themselves above worldliness. In other words, when we refuse to love our enemies, we are no better than the worst of sinners. In fact, that's exactly where Jesus goes next. If we don't love like God, we will love like sinners. And God's love is universal, regardless of if love is reciprocated. God chooses to love. He chooses to love. And so not only is love of divine origin, but love is radical. It is radical. And then you see it there in verse 46. If you love those who love you, love that is reciprocated. It's easy for me to love my wife because she's, 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 she's quite kind to me. She puts up with me. That, 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 that's easy to do. But there are people in this world who simply don't like me, who walk out of a room because, because maybe I said something 40 years ago and I'm only 39 that maybe hurt, hurt their feelings, whatever it might be. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? You're doing the very basics of human relationships. You like people who like you. Now notice in that scenario, you are the center of the entire relationship. The minute they stop liking you is the minute you end the relationship. There's no reward in that. There's nothing impressive in that. We can all do that. So he says, in fact, let me show you, the tax collectors do that. 
The tax collectors do that. You want to know why tax collectors hang out with the sinners and not the Pharisees? Because the sinners liked the tax collectors and the Pharisees didn't. Nothing, nothing uh, 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 you know, surprising about that. It's the way we are as humans. Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't the Gentiles do that? Have you ever noticed that you meet a Gentile who has a brother? They seem to get along just fine. Now, they will fight like all brothers fight, but don't mess with their brother. I mean, you grew up with that. I grew up with that, a brother and sister. We couldn't get along for nothing. Just don't mess with them. That was our rule. And they couldn't get along with me. Just don't mess with me. That was our rule. Right? I mean, and, and pagans get that. So what is setting the Christian apart from that sort of system? And Jesus' argument is that love is of divine origin. Thus, in, in a worldly context, love, true gospel love, is radical. So love bound by acceptance and ease isn't love. It is romance, friendship, affection. By definition, then, as the way Jesus defines it, love crosses boundaries and reconciles broken relationships. A relationship will never be mended unless what undergirds it is sacrificial gospel love. Think about it. Infatuation and lust have never saved a marriage. It will often be the source of, of its destruction. Tolerance will not sustain a family. Only love will. Think about it. You will put up with your weird uncle until he moves in with you or he wants to move in with you. Suddenly, your tolerance over Thanksgiving isn't so tolerant anymore. Tolerance can't hold a family together. You'll roll your eyes at Christmas dinner because you know it'll be over with in an hour. But if the relationship goes deeper than that, suddenly that isn't enough to sustain that relationship. Race, ethnicity, or a common story will not unite a nation. Only love can. Unless love transcends man-made boundaries and, and borders, then it cannot and will not be love. You can call it a host of other things, but it is not gospel love. The sort of love most of us practice, again, a love that says, I'll love you if you love me is not gospel love, it is pagan in its origin. It is worldly in its origin. This is why Jesus draws our attention to the tax collector and Gentile. We saw this this morning to where the Jews have plenty of people who they are taught from childhood to hate. See the Roman soldier, blood on his hands. See the tax collector, he is working for our oppressor. See the sinner, he's the reason why we are oppressed. They have plenty of people that they are told to hate. Hate comes easy for the human. I mean, look at our country right now. It's becoming a lot easier to hate people. And Jesus wants us to see that failure to love your neighbor, regardless of their attitude towards us or our feelings toward them, is a fundamental rejection of gospel love. And doing so, we are no better off than the worst of sinners. Thirdly, notice that not only is love of divine origin, and not only is it radical, but it also blesses. And to do this, I actually want us to go back. Let's leave this, this passage for now. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. I referenced this this morning. In the Beatitudes, like we know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful. We, we know those, and, and those, those look really good on Christmas cards and on Thanksgiving cards and on Mother's Day cards, right? Those are cute. Those are lovely. We always want to skip the last Beatitude. 
Because we Americans don't know what to do with it because we've never really had to do it. There in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice here that Jesus says um, that not only, so in, at the end of the chapter, he says you should love those who persecute you. At the beginning of the chapter, he says those who are persecuted are the ones who are being blessed. It's a crazy idea, isn't it? You won't find this hardly anywhere else in the history of the world. Those who suffer are the best off. And those who love the unlovable are the most blessed. And what we see here is that the secret to blessing is love. Now, now we can't go in the full discussion we did last time, uh, the first of last year, is remember that the word bless is one of those Christian words that we never define. We just sort of know by osmosis. And so in the Bible, uh, blessing has three meanings. One is worship, uh, but the other two are in the context of faith and wisdom. So, so what you get is in the uh, first, in the historical books of the Bible, Genesis to, say, uh, Nehemiah or Esther, is, is the word bless is often in the context of covenants. So Abraham is blessed by God by uh, entering into the Abrahamic covenant. So he'll say, I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. So, so here, one, one receives the blessing of God by virtue of faith. So in an intimate relationship with God, we experience the blessings of God. At its center is faith. The other use of blessing that we get in the Bible is as regards wisdom. So we see this reference in, often in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Blessed are those who you know, uh, rise up and, and, and study God's law, you know, Psalm 19, Psalm 1, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so we see this use all over the place. And, and I think Jesus is, is picking up on these uh, in, in the Beatitudes, so that, that not only are we blessed by virtue of our relationship with God, faith, but that we walk in the blessings of God by following after the wisdom of God. I mean, think about it. You could do a lot of dumb things and suffer the consequences. That's not a blessing. You could do a lot of wise things and as a result, uh, 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 live with the blessings that come with that. So, so, so for example, if let's say you, you won the lottery, you're a Baptist, you're not playing it, but you won it by not playing it somehow. I've been trying to figure that out. And, and you won $100 million. Well, most people who come into a large amount of money suddenly will go bankrupt within a short amount of time. Why? Because foolishness curses. So, so you've been blessed in one sort, but, but really your life has been ruined. Well, because that's what happens to fools. Or you can live wisely in how you raise your family, how you treat your spouse, how you uh, treat one another, how you walk in your daily life. These acts of wisdom can be a source of blessing, not just to yourself, but to others. So then what we get at the beginning here, blessed are those who are reviled. At the end, love those who revile you. What we get here is that when we walk in love, in gospel love, we are not only blessed by virtue of that, but we are a blessing even to those who want to curse us. History is replete with examples of this. Simply by suffering, simply by uh, uh, persevering through difficult times, we are not only blessed by the love of God, we become a blessing to others through the love of God. And what we need to see here beyond that is hate is a 
poison. Revenge is venomous. To love ones, to love someone who has animus against us is to choose for ourselves and others their blessing. Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 14 that envy makes the bones rot. So if hate is poison, revenge is venomous, envy is rottenness, according to the Bible. And so when we choose hate, we are choosing to drink from poison, hoping the other person suffers from it. That is the way of the fool. I've told a story before that when I was a substitute teacher, laugh at me later, that, that because I had a master's degree, I qualified to substitute for a, a, a sort of special class with troubled kids. They weren't the alternative school, but it was like the last step before alternative school. And, and that was like the only sub that could qualify by state regulations for this. And so I, I worked with them all the time. They had two teachers. They had a main teacher and a helper, and I would sub for both of them. And, and one kid who he, he was easily triggered. If you looked at him the wrong way, if you said something the wrong way, uh, just he was all the time talking smack, defending his, 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 his pride and his ego, and he was always getting in fights. And I remember one time he was just, he was just so worked up as, as young seventh grade boys do. He's just huffing and puffing. His face is red. We had to pull him out of, out of lunch. And I remember trying to slowly walk him through his thinking process. You don't understand, man. He dissed me. And I'm like, yo, what's it like? Okay, okay, let's, let's just do that. You punch him in the mouth. Yeah, that's right. That's what he gives. Okay, okay. How does that solve the problem? Well, he knows not to mess with me. Yeah, 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 but, but, but hear me out. In escalating the situation, don't you think he's going to punch you back? Well, you just let him. I'll give him, you know, and we just like, okay, okay, let's just pause for a minute. Did it solve the problem that, 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 that was raised? And you, you could not get him to see that his actions in choosing anger and bitterness and resentment and retaliation and violence always made the situation worse. Because what was happening was in his heart was poison. And he thought, so long as I defended my rights and my ego and my entitlements and my manhood, then, then, then what I would have is a life of joy, peace, and gratitude. But what he's creating for himself is misery and despair. Because that's what fools do. But if we choose love, as Jesus said in the previous passage here in chapter 5, to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to honor our word, to defend the dignity of others, what we are actually doing is we are choosing blessing for ourselves and for others. Have you ever met anyone easily angered who was ever happy? Probably not. Have you ever met anyone prone to grudges or easily triggered? Are they happy? No. Have you ever uh, met someone who was stuck in the wounds of the past? Are they ever happy? No. And as a result, because they choose something other than love, they fail to be a blessing to themselves or to others. Well, let us look finally, verse 48, love conquers. So we are not only called to pray for our enemies, we are called to love them. And we see that love is of divine origin, love is radical, love blesses, and love conquers. Here, verse 48, is kind of a striking verse when, when you look at it. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is, is perfect. Now, to understand this fully, we have to appreciate the context that we have here in chapter 5. Uh, really, the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is going right after the religious elites. This is a dominant theme in Matthew's gospel. He'll later call them sons of snakes. 
whitewashed tombs. That's later in Matthew. And here we're getting a good taste of this. The idea is that they believe that because they follow the law as they defined it with all their use of semantics and, 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 and everything else, they were therefore perfect. And they thought that if everyone could just be like them, Israel would be liberated, everybody would be happy, and the kingdom of God would be realized through their self-righteousness. And Jesus' point here is to raise the bar of perfection and righteousness so that even the Pharisees are under the weight of judgments. So he says that unless you are perfect, like your heavenly father is perfect, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, under that weight, the question then comes, how then do I enter the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is in the text. Love your enemies, who is your neighbor. Because in the Christian ethic, neighbor and enemy are not two categories. Your enemy is your neighbor. Your friend is your neighbor. Your spouse is your neighbor. Those weirdos on the other end of the street is your, is your neighbor. Those oddballs that you, they keep sending you weird messages on Facebook, those are your neighbors. There are, these aren't two categories in the teaching of Jesus, but the Pharisees taught otherwise. So what he shows them is that what they need, having, now that they are outside of God's favor, they must be brought into it. And the only way that can happen is by the means of substitution. So here Jesus puts the Pharisees on the same level of the tax collectors and other sinners. After all, the tax collectors hate the Pharisees just like the Pharisees hate the tax collectors. There's no difference between them. They have chosen hate rather than love. Therefore, they fail to be as perfect as God in heaven who himself loves universally. And if we are called to love like God, then when we fail to love like God, we are not as perfect as God. We could add to this list how they treat the Samaritans, the Roman soldiers, the Roman politicians, and countless others. Hate for the Pharisees was easy to justify. And Jesus comes to indict all of us, including the religious elites in this. What is striking about this text is Jesus is showing that the person they will grow to hate the most is the one who in the end perfectly loves like the Father. So it is through the religious elite's hate that Jesus demonstrates for us what divine gospel love actually looks like. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? So in their self-righteousness, they murder an innocent man. But in murdering that innocent man, he shows them everything he tried to teach them. That you must love perfectly as God in heaven loves. No one's ever done that except the one whom was hated the most and yet demonstrated his deep love even for his enemies. At the end of the day, if we want to know what this type of love looks like, we must always turn to the cross. I've shared this before, but uh, quite a while ago, um, there is a gentleman uh, in, in Breckerridge County. I, I don't want to share uh, what, what all he does, my relationship with him, but um, um, I went to go see, see him uh, in one of our trips to Breck County. We were able to sneak by Breck County this weekend and see some old friends. And um, I walked in unannounced, and, and he said, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, I'd, I'd sort of uh, walked this person through some crisis in their life. And he says, I've got some things I really need to get off my chest. I said, okay. So, so we start talking, and it's immediately, when are we allowed to get out of our guns against the woke lefties? And that's why I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> you know, I've gotten used to, is the vaccine the mark of the beast, that stuff. But this was, it's time for us to go to war. And we need to go to war against our neighbor. And, and I struggled reminding this believer in Christ 
about the cross. About the cross. That that when this becomes the issue in the New Testament, what happens? Jesus lays his life down, driven by love. And the love is directed towards those who are crucifying him. Jesus isn't showing love to those who are trying to rescue him because no one is trying to rescue him from the cross. He's showing his love to those who are watching him slowly decay and die. The the, the example we are given of what gospel love looks like lies at the center of the gospel. Jesus Christ there upon the cross. He is beaten. He is abused. He is struck. He is whipped. And he never retaliates. And they're hanging, barely able to breathe. He prays for the forgiveness and grace of those who are crucifying him. Those who are waving their finger, those who are mocking him as they pass by, those who are pressing the crown of thorns ever deeper into his skull, he is praying for their well-being. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. As if Matthew, in writing this, is saying, remember this passage because I'll illustrate it for you later in the book. And he does that at the cross. What's more is that the ethic of Christianity uh, in regards to love is a blood-soaked cross. This is why, and I've shown this a thousand times before, love is almost always connected with the crucifixion in the New Testament. Again, I'll I'll give you just three more examples, but I, I could give you dozens. In fact, I've told you before, the word love in the New Testament is almost always either past tense, loved, or it's in the present tense with a past uh, modifier. Let me show you three examples. Again, I could give you dozens. Here, here's some three good ones. God demonstrates his love towards us. Why? He was really nice to us. He smiled at us. He listened to us talk and talk and talk. No, no, no. How did God demonstrate his love towards us? He died for us while we were yet sinners. Notice that love is proactive in his actions. What God is not doing is, when you show a little bit of remorse, then I'll love you. It's I love you in the hopes you will show repentance. Love is proactive here. It isn't I'll show you love, you show me love. It is I will show you love regardless of context, regardless of any benefit to me. Ephesians 5 just to give you a practical example of this, husbands love, there's the presidents, love your wife. So we are called to love is the imperative command. So love in the present with the future uh, implications. You keep on loving your wives. Now, now th- th- you've heard us say before, and every preacher does this, what does loving your wife look like? Well, it could mean that um, you, you, you remember your anniversary and Mother's Day, and, and you remember to get her a gift on Christmas, right? Well, well, no, that's not how Paul's defining love here. He's defining love by the gospel. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, particularly as husbands, is, does my love for my wife mirror Christ-like love? And does my wife understand the gospel better simply because of the way I demonstrate my affection and love towards her? And if not, it isn't good enough. Raise the bar. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in this Matter of love. Let me give you just one more example of this just to, just to prove the point, and I'm not making this up. We know love, again, present tense. We know love now and love ongoing. We know love by this. Here it is. He's going to define it for us. He, that is Christ, laid his life down for us. And here's the application. We also ought to lay down our lives for the, for the brothers. I mean, it's just very clear there. 
I think it's in chapter 4 in, in 1 John where he says, we love because he first loved us. Again, I can give you dozens more examples of this. Do a word study of love. Get your Strong's Concordance out. Get on your ESV Bible and just type in love. Go to your BibleGateway.com. Type in love, whatever translation, translation you want. And do a word study uh, this week on, on love. And that will benefit you more than anything. Just meditate on what the New Testament says about love. You'll find it's almost always in the context of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Notice that it's God loved. And in John 3, he hasn't died yet. John is spoiling the end of, the, of his own story. God loved us so much he gave his son. That's the very definition of divine love. This is the Christian ethic. To love your neighbor, especially your enemy. Especially your enemy. And the only way we can do this is if we see ourselves as the people of the cross. Have you ever heard that phrase? The people of the cross. I've not done a big etymological study of that, but, but from what I could tell, that, that phrase has been around for a while, but let me share with you the first time I ever heard that phrase. It was in 2015, about eight years uh, from now. It's February 2015. We're coming up on the eighth anniversary of this. On the news, it told the story of uh, 21 kidnapped Egyptian Christians who were taken out to a beach in Egypt, captured by ISIS, and one by one, slaughtered in front of a camera, which was then aired online to the watching world. These men, these believers, were called a lot of names, crusaders and stuff like that. But the name the radicals, the Islamic radicals, preferred to call them was the people of the cross. It's the first time I ever came across that phrase to describe Christians. I think they were onto biblical theology better than they realize. And the irony is the people of the cross, those 21 gentlemen, God found them worthy to die as their Savior did. Thinking they were to stir up fear, in the end they only stirred up more courage among Christians around the world. Because Christians are the ones who love their enemies to the point they are willing to die for them. And that's how we change the world. Not through demagoguery, not through online hate, but by laying down our lives for the good of others. Isn't that what we see in Revelation? What's the two images of Jesus in Revelation 4 or 5? John first sees a lion who will rule, conquer, and reign. Then he sees a lamb and discovers how he does it. Not with a sword, but with a cross. Not with an army, but with love. Well, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would...